I think AI is the biggest platform shift we've seen since mobile or maybe the internet. It's going to be part of every product that you can imagine. Everybody in the office had this wow moment because we knew we were at the beginning of a complete transformation in how legal work was done. If people use general tools like ChatGPT that aren't trained for the law to get advice, it's dangerous. From the first-time founders to the funds that back them, innovation needs different. Our episode partner, HSBC Innovation Banking, is proud to accelerate growth for tech and life science businesses, creating meaningful connections and opening up a world of opportunity for entrepreneurs and investors alike. Discover more at www.hsbcinnovationbanking.com en-gb. Hello and welcome to the UKTN podcast, a weekly chat with the movers and shakers of the UK tech industry and the destination for all things UK tech related. I'm your host, Jane Wakefield, and joining me on the podcast today is Richard Robinson. Welcome, Richard. Hi, Jane. Thanks so much for having me. Now, Richard, you're the co-founder of Robin AI, which is a platform bringing artificial intelligence to the legal world, offering what you call an AI co-pilot for legal contracts. And before we get into the nitty gritty of that, it's AI is just the conversation du jour, isn't it? Everybody's talking about it. And in terms of businesses, everybody's either panicking about whether they should have it, how to use it, or whether they should spend vast amounts of money integrating new systems. So before we get into what you do, what, what would your kind of advice be to businesses that are considering integrating AI into their systems? I'd be looking in earnest. I think AI is the biggest platform shift we've seen since mobile or maybe the internet. It's going to be part of every product that you can imagine. And every single business in the world needs to be thinking about this right now. You don't necessarily need to rush to implement things. You've got to try things, be sensible, test, make sure that you're working with the right partners. But you've got to be thinking about how you're going to cope with this new technology because it's a huge opportunity, but also a tremendous risk. Now, you mentioned partners there. So let's talk about who you're partnering with, because this is quite interesting to me. Lots of people obviously know ChatGPT, which kind of jumped onto the scene and kickstarted this sort of current revolution in, in AI in some ways. But you're not using ChatGPT as the underlying platform for what you're doing. You're using a company called Anthropic which actually was created by a couple of people from OpenAI. It's had backing from Google. More recently, it's had a huge, I think, $4 billion investment from Amazon. So explain to me why you've chosen that company and what you think about it, the way that it's kind of coming up behind OpenAI systems. Yeah, we're really fortunate to have been one of Anthropic's launch partners, which meant we worked with them prior to the public launch of their model. We got to get a sneak peek of how it works. We work very closely with their team and their engineers, and we've just been astounded by how capable the model is, but just as importantly, how safe it is. And safety feels like a weird word in this context, but what it really means is the model tries to be harmless. It tries not to do things it shouldn't do, it tries to avoid making things up, it tries not to step outside of its boundaries by doing things like giving legal advice and by giving reckless advice that maybe you wouldn't want it to. And so it was Anthropic's 
prioritization of safety that really got us interested and focused in building and investing in a partnership. And we're glad that that's been rewarded with a big investment from Amazon, like you say, more than pocket money at $4 billion. We're really excited to partner with both Amazon and Anthropic, which we've been doing for a long time now. And obviously, you said safety there, and ChatGPT has come in for some criticism for being a system that's been slightly rushed out on the public. It does all the things that you mentioned before. It kind of doesn't get things always right. It, it makes things up because it's a bit of a black box. I mean, all these systems are, right? But you don't really know how it's kind of come to those conclusions. All things which I should imagine would be absolute anathema in the legal world that needs to have things right. So talk me through the the system you have in terms of data. Where did you get all your data from? You've got 7 million data points of legal text, I understand. So how did you come about that? And how can you ensure that that data is accurate, unbiased, and all the things we are concerned about with AI? Yeah, I think where the threat of these models making things up comes from is when you just interact with the model on its own, then it will match your question to patterns it's seen in what it's been trained on. So like you say, Anthropic's model isn't invulnerable to that. None of them are. All of these models have this risk that if you ask it a question about the world, it's just going to guess the answer based on what it's seen. And the approach we take is that we try to ground the model as much as possible in things that are real. And most importantly, that means our customers' contracts. So a customer might upload a document, could be a 150-page contract like a lease or a mortgage or an NDA, whatever it may be. And when we ask questions about that contract, the model is told in quite explicit terms and trained to only answer with reference to the document or only answer with reference to trusted sources that we feed it. And that enables us to eliminate hallucination. Because as you say, for a lawyer, it's just too risky to have a system that makes things up. And you say that, but obviously in law terms and more widely, we are seeing people putting a kind of blind faith into these generative AI tools. There was that famous case of a lawyer in the US who had used ChatGP to help with, with a legal case. And I think it was five of the legal cases that he cited were made up by ChatGPT. That's a worry, isn't it? Especially when it's being used in a legal context. It's absolutely a worry. And it's a reason why people need to be careful about which partners they engage with. If you just use ChatGPT, ChatGPT is an incredible tool. It's magical. But like you said, it's got its limitations. It, it, it's not an expert in the law. It's not an expert in healthcare. It's not an expert in astrophysics. And so you want to partner with people who take these models and then give them the knowledge, the boundaries, the data that allows them to be effective in your domain. So we are like to consider building an AI co-pilot for law. We are giving these models knowledge such that they shouldn't make things up about cases. In fact, they should give you access to every case ever reported in the most unimaginable way. But you need to work with people who understand your sector and your domain if you want to get that assurance. And isn't that expensive? finding that expertise that can take these models that have been trained on pretty much everything that's ever been written on the internet and kind of hone them down to the sector in which they are needed, in this case, law? No, it doesn't have to be. You're, you're right that building these foundation models, the models that 
ChatGPT and Anthropic build, they're incredibly expensive because they're training on the entire internet. The compute costs are in the many, many millions of dollars. But, you know, adding the expertise that we do is actually not that expensive. I think you'd be surprised. In fact, we actually offer a lot of our products for free. People can go on our website and just access our co-pilot without any cost because adding the expertise that we have is something we've been working on for three and a half years, actually. And these models drive so much efficiency. They make you so much faster that we can provide them at an extremely affordable price. Actually, that's a good point, isn't it? Because law is often seen as something kind of inaccessible to people without money. AI has the potential to really democratise access to legal services. Is that something that you see happening? Do you see any issues with that if people are starting to perhaps use these systems without the guardrails that that companies like you have? That that could potentially be dangerous, no? Well, Jane, this is why I started the company. I was a lawyer at a very, very big law firm. And in my first year, my parents couldn't afford an hour of my time. And I wanted to build a business that used technology to bring down the cost of accessing world-class legal advice. That's really why I do this. And so I wanted to build an AI that could help people, companies and individuals alike, to access great legal answers to their questions. So you're right. If people use general tools like ChatGPT that aren't trained for the law to get advice, it's dangerous and it, it, it will result in people doing the wrong thing. But if you work with companies who build systems specifically designed for that purpose and who you can trust to put the guardrails in, to put the knowledge in, to make sure that you're safe, then I think it's going to unlock so much value for the world. That's why we do what we do. It also, I guess, radically changes the sort of nature of the legal profession, which is expensive, but automation presumably brings down the cost of how much things cost and also would have an impact on jobs. If, if you know, this AI can do contract law faster and, and more accurately than a person, then why have a person at all? Yeah, I think we'll always need people because these systems, even when they're made by companies like us who spend a lot of time thinking about how we can improve quality, they're still not perfect. They're still not going to replace the need for an expert to use them. And that's why we call the product a co-pilot. And you're seeing all of these co-pilots across a range of industries is because actually the best design for these systems is to help people go faster. It's to empower people to do things that they might have done more slowly or may not have been able to do in the absence of this technology. So that's what we're doing. We're empowering people. You're completely right, though. If you can make people five times faster, then you don't need as many people as you do today. But I celebrate that, to be honest, because a lot of the work that we have young lawyers doing today is work that really nobody should be doing. I I spent a lot of my career reading thousands and thousands of pages looking for words or phrases in emails or WhatsApp messages or Bloomberg chats. And actually, if we could build systems that do that work for us, I think the world would be a much better place. And those people, those brilliant, bright young lawyers, they will do something else. They'll be focused on strategy or negotiation or things that are extremely human. And I think that's a good thing. So we welcome that. We're building systems that help people go faster, that don't replace them. But I think that the shift you'll see is a lot of the manual work of the past will hopefully disappear. 
HSBC Innovation Banking, our partner for this episode, provides commercial banking services, expertise and insights to the technology, life science and healthcare, private equity and venture capital industries. To find out why innovation needs different, go to www.hsbcinnovationbanking.com slash en gb. AI has a habit of surprising people, even a basic system, well, not basic, but a system that DeepMind built to play chess, surprised people with some of its moves, etc. What have you sort of seen from your system in the legal sphere that has surprised you? I think the rate of change has really surprised us. I mean, we started the business in 2019 and we obviously took a bet that technology would dramatically improve. But I think we didn't realize it would improve this quickly. So just at a general level, there's been a huge rate of improvement. But I would say specifically one one example of something that's really surprised us is the ability of these models to answer specific questions about a long document that might really only appear in one sentence. So you could ask a question about a 150-page contract And the answer could be in one single sentence. And the model can return the answer with 100% accuracy. It's really quite remarkable to see. Everybody in the office had this wow moment because we knew we were at the beginning of a complete transformation in how legal work was done. In the past, if you wanted to ask a question about your employment contract, you got to call your lawyer, you got to pay a lot of money, you got to get on a phone call. Now you can upload the document to our system and you can just type the question into the chat and get a really credible answer. And we didn't expect that to come this quickly. It's really quite remarkable. I've been doing a bit of writing about AI in the legal sphere. And I I noticed that a lot of these systems, and I think this is true of yours too, seem to be used in the US rather than the UK. Is there a reason for that? Well, the US is the biggest legal services market in the world. So something like 60% of the global legal services market is in the United States. So it's a dominant sector, but a lot of our customers are not just in the US and our systems are designed to work in English, in the US, in North America more broadly, in Australia, etc. I'd say the big limitation to most systems, including ours, actually is language. Right now, we're restricted to working on documents that are written in English because our models are predominantly changed in English. But that's something that we're working on over time as well. And how will that come about? I mean, that's presumably a change that needs to happen at a different level with these big tech companies that are coming up with the systems rather than something that you can develop yourself. But it's important, isn't it, that, that the whole world has access to these systems? Yeah, I think that's right. You're completely right. There are some structural barriers because most of the internet is in English because most of the online world is in the Western world, at least for now. And that's changing rapidly, but that is a factor. And these tech companies that build these systems are based in the United States predominantly. So you're completely right. There are some structural reasons. That said, we are seeing a change. China is rapidly growing its online presence. We're seeing huge online presence in India and in Asia more broadly. So with that, you'll see more training data written in foreign languages, and that will produce more models. Uh, but it's also true that companies like us, at the application layer, as it's described, people who build these systems for specific industries, uh, we can, through certain innovations, design products that can translate like from one language to another. 
Um, it's not straightforward. It's going to take a little bit of time, but it's actually something we're working on and hoping to have something in 2024. Now, you mentioned China there. Obviously, some people are very concerned about what China's doing with AI. It has become a bit of a US versus China. In terms of those geopolitics, do you, are you worried about you know, how this might play out now that we have this kind of rivalry between the, these two big countries? Absolutely. I'm really concerned because, like you said, these models do things that they were never really trained to do. Nobody really expected them to do. They call these emergent behaviors, things that kind of come because you're training them at such large scale. And nobody really understands what goes on inside the model. And so at a company level, I'm concerned that companies are racing to build more and more intelligent systems that could become quite dangerous. And as you're right, at a country level, I'm concerned that there will be a proxy conflict in innovation between China and the United States that, again, could lead to damage and harm. And in the UK, we're taking this really seriously. There's a task force created by the Prime Minister to focus on and help build frameworks for thinking about the safety of these systems. And I'm certainly a supporter of that. One of our investors, Ian Hogarth, is the chair of that task force. And he's got our full support because it's really important that the world thinks in advance about the potential dangers of these systems. And that danger is only made more real when you have companies or countries competing to build more and more intelligence systems. Now, you mentioned there the government's role in all of this. There's an AI summit coming up. Ian Hogarth's job is a hard one to try and work out exactly how much government interferes in this and how you make sure that you get these systems right. I mentioned earlier that they're black boxes. You know, even the companies that develop these systems don't entirely know how they're how they're working. So how on earth is a government going to sort of come up with the correct regulation for this nascent market? And what would you advise the AI summit to kind of concentrate on? Yeah, so on how government can do this, I think they've done the right thing, which is rather than have a group of elected representatives who don't know very much about technology opining on the rules, they've appointed industry experts like Ian, who's been an investor in in technology and AI specifically for over a decade. I mean, he was one of the first investors in Anthropic, actually. So he has deep expertise in this area, and he's assembling a team uh, adjacent to government of real experts who know what they're talking about. So I think they've got a chance. And what I would advise is, I, I don't know that I can advise because Ian's far more qualified than me, but What I would say is I think Ian will bring to this conversation the right instincts, which are we, of course, want to regulate the risk of these systems, but we don't want to choke off their tremendous potential. We don't want to cut off the companies that might be created that could make the country five times more efficient if we embrace these technologies. And so that's the goal. I think it's to be safe, but to give enough space for innovation to occur, for companies to be created, for experimentation to happen, and for great things to come out of these technologies. Well, let's hope that's the case. We will be following developments with that AI summit very closely on this podcast, for sure. Now, let's talk a bit now about investment. Now, you've raised $16 million so far. That's pretty good for a first-time funder. What do you think the reason for that is? Is it, you know, that you came up with this amazing idea that was... at the right time? Is it about you and other things that you would do differently? Because we do like to sort of offer a little bit of advice to other people that are in the same position. 
Yeah, I would say I put it down to two things. The first is just finding people who believe in your vision. I said before that the company's mission is to make contracts simple. We want to democratize access to world-class legal advice. And we found people who support that. So I certainly don't attribute the fundraising or our, any success that we have had to me. I put it down to finding people who want to go on that extremely ambitious journey. But I would also say we've, of course, especially now and more recently, we, we made the right investment in technology. We, we, were doing, we started the business in 2019. Uh, we were doing AI before it was as popular as it is now. And in that time, we built some really deep advantages that we're now starting to exploit. So I'd put a lot of our success down to that. And if I had any advice for people raising capital, I think it'd be this. The classic approach to fundraising, I think, is to uh, treat it like a sales pitch, to adjust your pitch to the person you're speaking to, to uh, frame your, your presentation based on what you think the audience wants to hear. But I actually think that the better approach is to find believers, to just go on a process of finding the people who agree with your vision, because they'll be better journeymen or women on the path, and they're much more likely to get what you're saying, to uh, make allowances and to see the vision you do. So I think finding believers rather than trying to persuade is a piece of advice I wish I had when I was starting out fundraising. And that's a good piece of advice. And one of your believers in the early days was Google. What was it like having Google, one of the biggest tech firms in the world, involved as an investor? And do you think that they, when they look for investment, they're looking for ideas, they're looking for people, or they're looking for a combination of both? Well, it was fantastic because we got a lot of access to a network. They backed a bunch of uh, startups and in particular uh, startups led by underrepresented founders, which gave me some of my closest friendships and colleagues and connections. But also it's great validation that you're on the right track. Google's an insanely ambitious business with some of the best engineers in the world. And so it feels good to know that they share your vision. I would say that as a company in an organization, what they look for is extremely ambitious technology-driven businesses that some people might think are crazy, but that they think makes sense and are exciting and could change the world. And so, yeah, we were so pleased to have their support. We still are. I was with the team just last week, actually, uh, talking about how we can continue to work together and speaking to some of the founder network that I've been introduced to. I can't let you go without asking you one final question about diversity in tech. Our first guest on the podcast was Ashley Ainsley, who obviously talked very articulately about this. It's still a massive problem, isn't it? What are your thoughts on what we do to solve that? And can AI play a role? <laughs> I think diversity in technology is a huge problem. And unfortunately, I don't think this is an area that AI is going to save us because these are problems that are innately human. They come down to matching patterns. They come down to unconscious bias. They come down to process. And that is what really, I think, needs to change. It is unfortunate that to this day, we are still massively underfunding underrepresented entrepreneurs because each one of those people could be someone who builds the next great business that takes the country forward and makes it more powerful. So uh, unfortunately, I haven't seen a lot of progress in this domain, certainly since I started fundraising. But I have hope, I have hope that in time, as more and more companies are created, as more and more innovation comes from where you would least expect it, people will start to change their patterns. They'll start to check their unconscious bias. They'll start to believe a little bit more in people that 
have never done it before. And I certainly hope I'm contributing to that. I, I try my best to uh, do everything I can to use the opportunity I've been given to the greatest maximum potential. Uh, but I do hope that we see change in the future because today the state is simply not good enough, I think, for a country that's so diverse as ours, the way we fund entrepreneurs simply isn't good enough. Well, that's a good point to end. And I'm afraid we've run out of time. Richard, thank you so much for a great discussion. It was lovely to meet you. Yeah, you too. And that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of the UKTM podcast. Thanks to Richard and thanks to everybody who is listening. And remember, you can keep up to date with all the latest UK tech developments at www.uktech.news. Don't forget to follow UKTN on LinkedIn and Twitter, where you can also get in touch with me at Jane Wakefield with your comments and suggestions about the show. Until next time. Goodbye from me. This podcast is brought to you by HSBC Innovation Banking, the power behind the UK's forward thinkers, future makers and leap takers. They're helping to ignite the bold ideas that reshape our world. Go to www.hsbcinnovationbanking.com slash en gb to find out how innovation needs different. 